Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, who will enforce the contractor vaccine mandate? The answer could be nobody. The contracting officer's responsibility is to put the clause in the contract. They're not responsible for auditing this. The chief data officer's location doesn't matter nearly as much as the job the officer's doing. The chief data officer should not have to worry about the technical side on how he gets done, but more importantly of what gets done and how it's delivered. And the CIO shift that's changing the entire government. They have to understand the business. So understand how the IT components and the parts and pieces actually work to enable the business side. It's Tuesday, October 26, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies have a new authorization playbook from FedRAMP. The FedRAMP blog says the playbook's a compilation of best practices for agencies that are starting the authorization process or reusing authorized cloud service offerings. Updates include information about the reuse process and FedRAMP's industry liaison program. The Department of Veterans Affairs will add Moderna and Johnson & Johnson shots to its booster program for employees. The agency says it will follow guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to offer the boosters. VA started offering employees the Pfizer booster in September. The State Department and the General Services Administration are winners of the Project of the Year from the Project Management Institute. The agencies collaborated on the Diplomatic Security Service Foreign Affairs Security Training Center. The center opened in Blackstone, Virginia about two years ago. You can read more on all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts like the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Gary Peters, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference. It's Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll be there, too. You can learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies, including zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and secure remote access. You can sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. Honeywell is one of the latest companies to say its employees have to be vaccinated against COVID-19 because of the executive order that requires shots for federal government contractors. Companies have a series of deadlines coming. Angela Stiles is a partner at Aiken Gump. She's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Angela, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense of who's struggling and who's doing okay at getting their employees vaccinated and complying with the executive order? Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I think that companies that sent their workforce home, uh, the IT companies are doing just fine. I think they welcomed the executive order. So if you look at the technology and the IT companies uh, that were able to work from home through the whole pandemic, um, this has given them another opportunity to explain to employees why 100% vaccination is required. The government requires it, we require it. The companies that are really struggling are the manufacturing companies. And so if you have drivers, if you have a manufacturing workforce, uh, you are struggling with, can I actually meet these requirements? I mean, what's, what's interesting is that the executive order came out in September and when the executive order itself came out, it did not apply to prime contracts for products. And so manufacturing companies were not prepared for the safer workforce work force guidance, task force guidance, Um, but, and they certainly weren't uh, ready for really aggressive implementation that you're seeing by 
uh, GSA and you're seen by the Defense Logistics Agency. When you refer to aggressive implementation by GSA and DLA, what does that mean? What does that look like for the vendor? And how does that potentially impact the customers of those organizations that might see some kind of slowdown, supply chain issue, or whatever? So GSA has included a mass modification for all scheduled contracts, both product and services requiring the vaccine mandate. And they have said you have to execute it by November 14th. And if you don't, agencies aren't going to be able to order off of your schedule, even just products. The Defense Logistics Agency has came out, come out and announced the exact same thing for many of their contracts as well. So that's the challenge, though. I imagine for under another challenge potentially for companies, you said DLA has announced the same change for many of their contracts. What's the differentiator and how does one know whether one's contract falls under this category or that category? Very good question. Everybody presumed if you were a product contractor that it wasn't going to apply to you. Uh, the Defense Logistics Agency um, has not been terribly clear about which ones they're going to apply it to and not apply it to. They've listed a couple of contracts that they think that they that are product contracts that they think there's a great deal of interaction between DLA and the manufacturer, like deliveries required, having to be on site to install it, even though it's a product contract. Those kind of contracts they said they're going to apply it to. How does that manifest itself for the company? What happens if they come up against these deadlines and they're not able to comply? Are they out of business? What, What does that mean? There's no enforcement mechanism. I think that's what's really interesting about this is that the contracting officer's responsibility is to put the clause in the contract. They're not responsible for auditing this. Maybe there's False Claims Act liability down the road if you have False Claims Act relators, but it seems very, very attenuated. There is no infrastructure in place to enforce this. But that doesn't mean companies aren't trying to comply. Yeah, I've seen Honeywell's not the only company that I've seen that has uh, announced these mandates, not just for their government contracting sectors, but for their entire companies, just to make sure it seems to me that the administration, that the government understands they're trying to comply with the federal contractor mandate. Well, the federal contractor mandate is so broad, it pretty much applies to your entire company. And so if you have people that are working in connection with a federal contract, so HR, legal, billing, they have to be vaccinated. But anybody that works in the same building with them, even if they're not touching the contract, have to be vaccinated. And so if you have a manufacturing floor with, you know, some people that are government contractors and some people that aren't, or frankly, if you have a main office building, a home office, you're going to have to vaccinate everybody in the home office. And so some companies have just decided, well, we might as well go ahead and vaccinate everybody. And I also think you have the OSHA rule coming up. And, you know, the OSHA rule allows you to test people versus vaccinate people. It gives you the option. And a lot of companies have decided the vaccine mandate is probably going to be less expensive for them to having to test people every day. Have you seen any unintended consequences from this executive order and from the ways that companies have tried to comply with it, Angela? Anything that companies have to do or are doing on their own that kind of goes against the grain of what was intended here? Well, I mean, I think it's going to have a supply chain impact. You know, so we're already having trouble with trucking and manufacturing supply chains and this is only going to exacerbate that. There are a lot of people that do not want to be vaccinated, and there are a lot of people that um, 
do not want to turn over their vaccination records. And those people actually are willing to quit and walk off the job. And that tends to be people that are, you know, more in the manufacturing middle of the country. Uh, and I think it's only going to have a, a more significant impact on supply chain. Any, uh, run me through the deadlines that companies are up against that, uh, that their employees have to comply with to make sure that they're in, in compliance. So the executive order isn't self-executing. So a lot of people think that it just automatically applies and it doesn't. You actually have to accept a contract with the clause in it. So you have to accept a contract or an order or a modification. And then once you accept it, you either have to comply, you have to have your people fully vaccinated by December 8th or when you first begin performance. So there's a lot of companies that don't accept contracts every day. Um, that'll be months and months off. Um, and then there's a flow down to subcontractors, which are still even many more months down the road. But if you have it in your contract today, you have to have everybody fully vaccinated by December 8th, which is you know, two, two weeks after uh, Moderna or Pfizer and, and to, or two after the second dose of Moderna or Pfizer and, one, and then one dose of Johnson & Johnson. Final thought, Angela, if I have a contract already and it gets modified and for whatever reason, I don't want to comply with it, does it what happens? It has to be a bilateral modification. So you can ask the government to pay the cost of actually implementing the vaccine mandate to accept the clause. So that is ongoing back and forth between the government and contractors right now. So many wrinkles in all of this, Angela. Thanks for giving us some insight into it. Appreciate it. Thank you. You can read more about the vaccine mandate for contractors in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A change is coming to the CIO office at the Federal Communications Commission. Francisco Salguero's left after almost two years as chief information officer there and 10 years at USDA. Before that, Francisco's now at Salesforce. Francisco, thanks for coming on. What do you leave behind as your favorite achievements at the FCC? Welcome. So, uh, so first, thank you, Francis. Really uh, appreciate you having me on here. Um, you know, really thinking back at my time at the FCC, there's a couple of things I'm really proud of. Um, obviously, none of us expected to be in a pandemic for as long as we were. Um, so I'd say that's one of my proudest uh, achievements there is to be able to not only pivot and very quickly move into a pandemic mode and fully remote, uh, but we were able to do so by not missing a step in all the mission work we had to do at the SEC, which included auctions, which uh, for those that are involved in that area know it's very uh, very detailed. It's also very much reliant upon being on premise. Um, so we were able to do a hybrid type solution for them and not miss a single step on the auction side. And then also for our users uh, to that were not used to using a remote type of uh, work environment, actually pivot and be able to do so and do it for now close to two years. Um, so that that's that along with uh, our VDR, our virtual desktop infrastructure, we had an on-premise type solution and we're able to actually move into the cloud. Um, so while that transition right now is actually within this week to be completed, uh, that's one of the proudest things to set that framework and build it so we had the elasticity 
and sustainability that we didn't necessarily have with on-premise type solution. What building blocks did you have when you came into the organization or when the pandemic started that allowed you to make that pivot quickly? A lot of organizations uh, that I talked to were able to do that because they had done certain things, obviously not anticipating a pandemic, Francisco, but setting themselves up for whatever came. The pandemic came. What did you have that made that pivot easier? So a lot of the tools were in place. Um, so we didn't have to really go and do a big procurement because we had the tools in place to actually uh, make sure that we could move forward with what we needed in a pandemic situation. And uh, another big item was the actual uh, use of platform as a service and to be able to actually implement a system for the COVID telehealth uh, applications and for the reimbursables through the, the uh, CARES Act and do that within six weeks. Um, so that, you know, along with trying to make sure that we were in line uh, with everybody fully remote, were you know, I forgot to mention that one. That's actually a big achievement, uh, you know, using that from a, from a FCC perspective. We didn't have to go out and procure a new system, a new platform. We were already in the cloud. We, what we just did is leverage it even further. What's your cloud architecture look like at FCC? What are you, how do you have your applications and your data distributed in the cloud, Francisco? So we're a multi-cloud organization. Um, So we have platform as a service. We also leveraging uh, AWS, Azure, Microsoft. So we're not set to one flavor, if you will. We got to make sure that we distribute uh, across appropriately uh, with our data strategy, along with our application strategy, and then look at our infrastructure as well. For those things that are really able to be able to move to the cloud, we're doing so. So that's one of the things that, uh, you know, as I look further into the future for the FCC, there's a lot of building blocks that are set. The foundation is getting ready to be uh, fully implemented and laid so that we can build upon that for the future. You mentioned data and your tenure at the FCC tr- uh, covered pretty much the rise of data as a strategic asset, data strategy, and so on. Um, How is the data posture different at the FCC than it was when you walked in the door? Not to reflect on your uh, predecessors or anything, but just how um, how have you elevated the importance of data and the way that the agency collects and curates data? Sure, absolutely. So again, what I believe the FCC did a really good job is setting the foundation we had a chief data officer um, that was really not within the CIO's office. Is actually sitting with what uh, is called OEA or the Office of Economic Analytics. But we built a partnership. So that foundation was starting to get laid. And through our, my time there working with Steve Rosenberg, who's the chief data officer, really start to, to build a partnership so that we could take some of the foundational technical work that we had done from a data warehouse perspective and leverage that for a data strategy. And so within the FCC, the Broadband Data Act is a big uh, investment that we have to make sure that we do appropriately to meet all of our goals, to meet all of the mandates we have. So from that perspective, that partnership was key. And so by you know solidifying that further, and now we're actually going through and actually building certain uh, data marts as well as data analytics and the visualization necessary to have a good strategy. I'm thinking about this more conceptually than specifically to your relationship with your CDO, but what do you think a a successful relationship looks like between a chief information officer and a chief data officer? 
and I think it's important to think about it conceptually because everybody's structure seems to be different, right? You talked about right. the way that your your CDO at, at FCC didn't report to you. In some organizations, uh, that person does report to the CIO. Regardless of that, what does that relationship look like when it works well in your view? In my view, what really is important is to understand that the chief data officer should not have to worry about the technical side on how it gets done, but more importantly of what gets done and how it's delivered. So really they are that user that looks at it from, okay, how am I going to use? How am I going to store? And how am I gonna make sure I secure the data side and the technical side with the CIO's office and that team is to actually enable the technology to do everything that the chief data officer is looking to achieve. So if that's the case, it strikes me that maybe it's not so important where the chief data officer sits. Because I, I know when the chief data officer legislation became law, there was a lot of kvetching and pearl clutching. Where do we put this person and what's the reporting chain? doesn't sound like that matters that much as long as that person's performing the right role for the organization and connecting with his or her counterpart in the CIO chair and the other CXOs. Sounds like that's not as important as people made it out to be? It is, it's important, but only the fact that I think what's even more important, more relevant is a partnership into making sure you're looking to achieve the same goal. My time at USDA as the deputy CIO, actually the chief data officer was reporting to me. Um, so in that aspect of it, it was in the OCIO's office and to the CIO from that perspective. So there, and it worked well for us there at USDA. You know, and at the FCC was kind of a different. It was one of the things I had to look at. Okay, how am I going to make this work from a overall perspective? What we had to do from a CIO and from a data perspective. Um, so from there was okay. I have to make sure that the CDO is to me just like any other program where they're the users. They understand the business side of things, and so data is really business. You know, when we talk about data, it's not just you know the bits and bytes and understanding the technical side of things, that's all great and good, but you have to be able to translate that. And that's what the CDO does. They translate data into what the nomenclature and for the understanding of the business. And so they become truly that bridge between the CIO and the programs and offices that need to understand the data as well. Francisco, hold on for a moment. We'll continue the conversation shortly. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Wednesday's show, planning for safety and productivity when you and your team go back to the office. Michelle Rosenberg of the Government Accountability Office will be here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Back to my conversation with Francisco Salguero, the outgoing CIO at the FCC. Francisco, how do you see the job of chief information officer changing over time, both the time historically that you've been in government and moving forward? What do you think a CIO does differently two years from now or five years from now than she does today? It really is, is going to depend on the CIO almost I, don't, I hate to say this, but it's personality-driven uh, to a certain <laughs> perspective, right? Because you have some CIOs that are technical and they understand the bits and bytes and and that's the fun stuff. That's the geeky part. And I'll be honest, I, that's the world I came from. Uh, but what I've seen over the last several years from a CIO, it's not just to know the bits and bytes. It's not just to know the technology side, but they have to understand the business. So understand how the IT components and the parts and pieces 
actually work to enable the business side. So what I've seen over the last several years is actually that's come closer together mm-hmm. so that we are, you know, CIOs truly do get to sit at the table. And that's not to say we're at a place where it's like that for everyone everywhere. I mean, that's still evolving. That's still something that we have to work towards because um, honestly, when I began my career, just in IT alone, the IT CIO sometimes was a director. You know, it wasn't a CIO, it wasn't a chief executive or a CXO type person. Um, so over my time in the federal government as well, I saw the CIO start to get elevated more and more with the understanding that they have to be partners with the business, where they have to be partners with the bureaus and offices of the agency they serve. And you saw that especially, I imagine, at the uh, at USDA because of the elevation of Gary Washington, not just title-wise, but as really an important part of establishing the centers of excellence and uh, really being involved with Secretary Purdue and now again with Secretary Vilsack. You've been to the FCC since Secretary Vilsack came back. But the that prominence that he has in the CXO suite is dramatically different than I imagine it was when you first came into USDA. Oh, absolutely. I saw that a huge difference, even when we looked at to elevate and change the organization where, you know, as Vitara really laid out a singular CIO with an agency such as USA, as big as it was, uh, that dramatically changed the game because that said, okay, that is a singular CIO. And so when all the other um, agencies and the undersecretary started to understand that and have relationships with the CIO, it, it changed, it really changed the vernacular, it changed the game from talking about, email talking about servers being down or things like that, it really started talking about, okay, how do we enable your business? And as you mentioned, the centers of excellence was just another high point in saying, okay, how do we translate customer experience? And it was no longer just about IT. It was about customer experience and people uh, using technology. And, and that to me was a big change. The Fatara and everybody understanding what Fatara truly brought you know, a lot of those components of Fatara were not new, as many of us know, right? But it just had an additional emphasis and it made agencies start to change and pivot and think about how can we truly leverage technology? And honestly, if we had not started to do that when we did, I think the the pandemic would have been a little different in the fact that it would have taken a little bit more work for folks to get ready. And I think, you know, for... Um, I hate saying this, right? But, you know, we have to always kind of look at the, the the other side. So the pandemic, as horrible as everything is for people and it affects people's lives, there's the other aspect of, well, it actually brought to the forefront of what IT can do to enable of us to continue to move forward. I want to go back to the FCC. We could do the entire conversation about the shift from IT for IT's sake to supporting customer experience and and delivering for citizens. And maybe we should do that at some point, Francisco. That would be that would be cool. Um, but I want to go back to your experience at the FCC. I think everybody leaves these positions wishing they had finished something, fill in the blank, some some project that you were really invested in in the time that you were there. What is an example of that for you? What's something that you will look forward to watching your successors uh, finish that you started on your watch? So I'm going to give you the easy answer for me at this point. Uh, it's going to be almost a comical one. So when I actually got to the FCC, we were in uh, the headquarters building was just off C Street down in uh, 
near the monuments, actually near USDA, funny enough. Um, we actually moved, physically moved in a virtual environment. So we actually moved to Noma, uh, north of Massachusetts, and I've never seen the building. Uh, <laughs> but having been part of the uh, team that actually laid the, you know, the new technology, um, you know, the new offices, uh, it's something that I will unfortunately never get to see from the other side to say, okay, this is what the fruits of our labor actually done, where we implemented a new voice over IP um, upgraded solution, uh, you know, in the cloud, uh, actually have video conferencing throughout the building, which we did not have previously. Um, so there are a lot of technical whiz-bang things that, you know, were kind of cool to put into place. Uh, unfortunately, I'll never get to see that. So that, that to me is a selfish, you know, never got to see that new building. Um, and, you know, some technical aspects of it that the geeks are part of me who actually says, oh, that would have been cool to actually see what it looks like. Um, so those are, that's one of the things that, you know, you know, I wish I could have seen. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, Sean Costello, who's the, who's my deputy CIO, right now is the acting CIO, is the full implementation of our cloud strategy. So uh, this year, we're actually moving forward with actually developing the full IT modernization plan, which, you know, cloud adoption was definitely a part of it. We were already working towards that, but now this is get the rest of our applications there. Um, so that's one of the things that, of course, with an IT, and I thought about this as I made this move, is when is the right time? And never is the right time because there's going to be something always that is left undone because IT never ends because as soon as you implement something new, it's old. Now you got to think about what the next step is, the involvement. There's never a good time to transition, but you have chosen to do so. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're now the former CIO at FCC. You're moving to Salesforce. What do you want to offer to your colleagues in the federal IT community from industry rather than offering it to them as a peer in the, in the CIO community, Francisco? Sure, absolutely. Good question. Uh, so for me, it's... One of the things that I really enjoyed when I was at USDA was the cloud adoption centers of excellence. And really Salesforce really helps bring that fruition forward. Um, you know, when I started using Salesforce, it was several years ago, so it's not where it is today. Now it's a fully, uh, fully ecosystem that there are different components that really it's about leveraging the investment. If you have investment that you wanna make sure that you can take its full advantage of, that's what Salesforce brings to the table. And that's what I want to be able to, you know, help other CIOs and federal executives to understand what that power truly is. Because that's one of the things that uh, within the federal government, we hear about these things. And sometimes we look at it as, well, that's a private industry um, tool and, and not fully understand how can the government also leverage it. And that's one of the things I want to bring to the table is say, okay, here's your platform that you've invested in. Now, how do you fully utilize that and actually use all components of its ecosystem? Francisco, congratulations on a terrific career in the federal government. And uh, now that you're out, I'll look forward to calling on you more often and, and having you help us understand what's going on in the federal IT community. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Francisco. You can read more about Francisco's transition in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A look at safety and productivity when you and your team come back to the office. That's tomorrow on the Daily Scoop podcast. Until then, I'm the host, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.